What does it take to be a true leader in troubling times? Fordham Law School Dean Matthew Diller recently sat down with Tanya Tetlow, Fordham University's new president. They discussed their own unique style of leadership, the crucial role lawyers have in solving the hard problems of our democracy, and how to prepare law students for a career in the service of others. An edited and condensed version of this interview appears in the latest issue of Fordham Lawyer Alumni Magazine, but we wanted to make their full, wide-ranging conversation available to the entire Fordham community. That full conversation follows. President Tetlow, Tanya, if I may, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Uh, you're just about concluding your first semester here at Fordham. How's it going? It's been great. Just a whirlwind of meeting everyone and digging in and reading spreadsheets and the history book and talking to students and all of the various constituencies, but it's it's been a delight. Well, it's wonderful to have you here at Fordham and to get to know and to work with you. It's a, it's a total pleasure. Thank you. I wanted to, to talk with you today about leadership uh, and about what leadership means and about your approach to leadership and, uh, and how your legal training and experience play into that and factor in. Uh, what is most important to you about leadership? I mean, not a sort of trite elevator pitch version of it, but I think a few things. One is that you have to have a variety of skills, right? I don't feel like I'm the best at any one thing, but that range um, matters. Uh, and then increasingly, leaders are realizing that you have to be authentic, that the myth of perfectionism is just silliness and it's off-putting to people, that um, to really engage with the people you are leading, you need to lead from the front lines with them, not back on a hill on a horse, um, but actually with the troops, um, persuading everyone to move forward with you. How did you come to that realization? I think that I've just known no other way. Since I became an administrator in higher ed, reading a lot of the leadership textbooks, and I find that a lot of what they tell you are in some ways, the way that women are socialized to be emotionally intelligent, to um, put yourself in other people's shoes all the time, to think about the big picture and and the diplomacy of the situation. And in some ways, I think it's the Jesuit roots that I have of what Ignatius knew 500 years before all the business reviews came up with it, that, that self-awareness of your own flaws, of your own filters, the ability to really listen hard um, and to to do the process of discernment, you know, to take in information all sorts of ways, to sit with it, to give the decisions the time they need, and to check your gut and your values. And I would imagine, you know, if 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 you have, give yourself the license to be authentic, that's also uh, in some ways easier than putting on a persona all the time. Yes, I'm really bad at putting on a persona. So <laughs> this is just all that I know. But especially after you prove your competence to people, right, that's a necessary precursor. But after that, the fact that you're human and warm and funny when you can be is, is so appreciated. I mean, we know this as law professors, right? Our students laugh at our jokes more than they're really funny. <laughs> they're just very grateful for us making the attempt to bring them in. And I guess I would say it's it probably works better if you have a, 
uh, an authenticity and personality that connects with people and that enjoys people uh, and values them. How has your legal training and skills as a lawyer played into your leadership style? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot because uh, you'll be delighted to know that lawyers are taking over university presidencies <laughs> in many ways. So uh, I was counting for the 27 Jesuit schools. We're now up to six of us uh, are lawyers by training. Um, I think a few things. The ability to take in a lot of information in what is an incredibly complicated uh, job and organization and to hone in on what matters quickly is is a legal skill, right? All those years as an associate in a law firm of reading boxes of documents finally paid off for me. And then uh, the ability to persuade, uh, having been a litigator and a prosecutor to try jury trials, and then really as a teacher as well, um, of not starting in the middle, not speaking in jargon, not talking to hear yourself talk, but really thinking about the people you're addressing, what they know, what their context is, and how you will um, help them, uh, help teach them the thing that you're trying to explain, help persuade them of the point you're making, um, is more rare than I would imagine it to be, um, but is is really fun to do. You know, as, as I was thinking about this issue, uh, I come back to some of those basic analytical skills that we teach yes. in law school, how to break down a complicated problem, as you were saying, into constituent and component parts and pushing on each one yes. to see what really makes a difference. Yeah. And realizing that process matters, right? We can go too far. You and I have joked about how law faculties that we've both been part of love to think about the process by which we decide the point more than even the substance of it. But um, it matters to engage a university community and in making decisions. It matters to get the best ideas. Um, it matters that things be transparent and clear. And, and we know that from the ways we've had to think about the legal system. And they're all you know, every system is imperfect because it's run by human beings, but there are ways to try to make it as fair as possible. You know, and part of our training as lawyers is to think about each decision as setting a precedent uh, and to think about its future consequences in that uh, way. Is, is that, uh, well, that can be an asset. Can it also be a liability? Yes. I mean, the trick is to avoid um the risk aversion that we are taught as lawyers, partly because we see what could go wrong by our training, which is really good when you're writing a contract, but not so good when you're trying to solve a complicated problem and you can't just say no all the time, right? You've got to, the best lawyers know to do this. They know how to get to the the answer, even if it requires creativity. But um, yeah, those analytic skills have to be balanced with creativity of the ability to see beyond the way we've always done things, of thinking outside the box, um, that really matters, especially in higher ed right now because the world is changing so quickly. The other thing that I think of when I think about um, lawyers and leadership is how we are trained and used to seeing problems from other people's perspectives. Yes. Uh, And why is that important? What we teach in law school is that you can't really know the strength of your position until you can articulate the other side in a way that they would recognize as the best argument. And it's such a jarring thing to do as a law student, as a young lawyer, as I remember being assigned an argument to make that I thought was just laughable, but then coming up with pretty persuasive reasons why it might be true. But it, it reminds you to challenge your own thinking 
all the time, and that is just critical. We get stuck in ruts. We think we know the answers, but the ability to constantly argue the other side of the point is probably the best lawyerly way we get to creativity is to challenge our own beliefs all the time. In my uh, view, unless you can do that well and by doing it well, it's not just make being able to articulate the arguments. It's also understanding the power of the arguments. You can't succeed. Well, and I think now uh, for our students, there's a world really from all sides of of them being less comfortable with being challenged. And what I think we know from law and legal teaching is that that ability to flip and argue the other point is not moral relativism. It's in fact the constant willingness to challenge your own beliefs and make sure that you were right. Um, and that is something that um, we bring to universities as well as the total commitment to um, critical thinking, to civil discourse, to free speech, that this is how we get to the truth, is that we're willing to be uncomfortable sometimes. And law is, is all about coming to terms with difference, right? It's all about there, you know, different perspectives on a given issue, different points of view, conflicts and disagreements, and then how do we move forward and reach a resolution? You know, when I think about that, I also think about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, and how does that figure in uh, to your thinking about uh, our university and universities in general? Well, what I first got excited about in in writing about law was around the Equal Protection Clause and the history of the Constitution in this country and how much of it revolved around race. You know, everything from anti-discrimination law, but also federalism. So much in our own legal history is really focused on that. And so universities are tremendous gatekeepers of opportunity in our country. So we think about it from the front end of of who we admit, of how we see that talent is dispersed widely and that we bring it to the table, of how we create communities where students will learn as much from each other as they do from us, which they get when they have really diverse writ large geographically, economically, and racially um, communities from which they get to experience someone who just grew up in a very different atmosphere and environment than they did, and most of the time learn how much, in fact, they have in common more than they expect. Um, So all of that matters. And it's not just about getting in. It's about how well we support students, how well they graduate, keeping an eye on retention rates, and then how much we model opportunity to them and the diversity of the people who work at a university and and, um, making sure that the faculty represents the best and the brightest, too. So the university has an important mission in terms of the search for truth, right, uh, and, uh, and educating students about that uh, pursuit. But it also plays a major role in our social structure uh, in society, and, uh, and you're very thoughtful about that role. Can you talk a little more about, um, you know, the impact of Fordham and what you'd like it to see, like it to be on the world? Well, especially for our lawyers, that, that we train and um, hope that we have molded um, both in attracting people who are drawn to our Jesuit mission and the power of law to do good or not. Understanding the power we have in teaching that to our students, that ability we have, the responsibility we have as lawyers to 
to support the structures and ethics of a constitutional system is vast. And it comes sometimes in big dramatic moments labeled as such where you know you will make the history books. But more often in these very small moments of whether you exaggerate or omit to a judge of how you treat opposing counsel of, as a prosecutor, I had the great um, privilege of, instead of representing a client, being tasked with doing justice. And I will never have more power in my life than I did over the cases that I um, worked on to really grapple with what is fair here? What is the right answer? And so it is our great privilege at a law school, at a Jesuit Catholic Fordham Law School, to really dig into how we best teach that, how we bring the best out of our students, how we make sure they lead lives of integrity and support our democracy. So we emphasize to our students, uh, and our culture is really rooted on service, uh, and the idea that you can have an impact through using your legal skills and your training and your and your va- and the values of the profession on individuals, on people's lives, on things that are really important to them, and then on a larger scale through institutions, communities as a whole, and our nation. Uh, And all of that is critically important to us. And we do it by focusing on the set of skills and talents that lawyers bring to bear on on problems. Yeah, tell me more about that, because I know you're very proud of some of the ways you've affected the curriculum in that regard. So part of it is, I think, inherent to to our mission and, and what goes on in all of our classes every day, whether it's a corporations class or a torts class or property class. Um, you know, it, it is what we bring to the table and it is what we seek our students to walk away with is this feeling that they have a set of skills that can be brought to bear to help people. But we've also worked on being more thoughtful and deliberative about how uh, we can support our students so that they go out in the world ready to make a difference. And that involves uh, making sure that our students can work across cultures, um, that they understand uh, the tremendous diversity of our community, of our society, uh, and the need to build bridges, uh, and the need to understand that people come from very, very different perspectives, and that they need to be able to form connections, and they need to be able to listen, uh, and to listen not just in a superficial way, but in a deep way, to understand the meaning and power of what they're hearing and to take that in and to absorb it. So that is very Ignatian, that openness, the the willingness to discern, the not getting attached to things because they're the way you've always done it. And it's also, as we know, what makes you a really good lawyer, right? That ability to find the truth, to, to not be stuck in the, what you think you know. So I love that you wrap it in that language of professionalism and of the skills it takes to do the profession, but it also corresponds with what makes you a good person. And then I would I would add to that and say uh, they also need to understand something about our institutions and society uh, and about what's going on in the bigger world uh, and to understand that, well, we like to think that the, um, uh, you know, the arc bends towards justice. Uh, it seems to take a long time in getting there uh, and that, in fact, our world is riddled with injustice uh, and that they can make a difference. Uh, they can make a difference in people's lives, but that nonetheless, it's an, it's an issue that will endure and that will be worth their efforts and their talents over the course of their career. 
So there's nothing that annoys me more than the idea that progress is inevitable um, and that there are a lot of contested moments where we go forward and we go backwards and lawyers often play a big part of that. So I, I do think there's something so specific that gets presented to us as lawyers between our our duty to represent a client and then what um, ability and responsibility we have to still preserve the values of our country, our legal structures, democracy, and basic civility. And those two things can feel in conflict sometimes, depending on your client and the cause that you're representing. So that ability to talk about it openly, to do more than just the legal ethics class hypothetical, which often feels totally, um, you know, unlikely to happen, but that constant sort of day-to-day pressure on us is really critical. So we're in a moment where public discourse is dominated by Twitter feeds and sound bites and quick instant reactions um, rather than deep thought. And that sending that message to students that they should be you know, focused on the language of the Constitution, the language of the laws, the meaning of the decisions, uh, all those tools that we train students to focus on, on rational discourse, can seem challenging to students in terms of its contemporary relevance. Uh, Yes. Do you have a message to students about that? Well, I tell them that, you know, one of my favorite emotions to delight in is self-righteousness, but it's almost never actually persuaded anybody. And that, you know, there's a world where they can hear the idea that problems are complicated as an excuse, but the reality is problems are complicated, choices are constrained. And so there is such power to joining the people at the table in the work of solving the complicated problems rather than just be the person self-righteously yelling from the outside. You know, there's a role to play in turning up the heat sometimes and um, marching on a picket line. But the real difficulty is finding the answers. And so that ability that we teach um, law students to have to engage in complexity, to really grapple with um, close readings of texts and hundreds of pages of opinions and, and sorting it all out and trying to find a way to navigate an answer is unbelievably important to actually making progress. So let me, let me phrase it one more way, which is uh, to the student who says, why is it relevant in today's world for me to spend hundreds of hours reading these old Supreme Court decisions, these this old case law, um, you know, common law decisions about you know, property rights in England. Um, why is that relevant? Because the notion that the human race just reinvents itself every five minutes, Twitter aside, is just wrong. And that ability to pull deep meaning, to understand human experience of why we got to where we are is part of finding the answers. It's part of what persuades. And it's such a good skill set to have, but it's also this is the world in which we work and this is how you persuade a judge to take your side in the case. So it has both practical payoffs, right? This is how you persuade a judge, and this is the tools that you need and you use. Uh, but I think you're making a larger point, too, about a kind of worldview and uh, and a way in which this history will, um, and an understanding and focus on it, uh, will actually matter in the, in the future, in the long run. 
I don't know if this is my lawyer training or not, but the first thing I did before starting this job was to read histories of Fordham and to really start to understand in a deeper way um, what our origins are of the culture that was created of so much that matters because the notion that you can just start fresh and ignore all that doesn't work. You know, you work with your strengths, you lean into the culture and then you make progress. You don't just ignore it. And I will say where I often go in my my thinking in moments that are particularly tough is where it seems extremely difficult to make progress in a large scale is you can always make progress in a small scale. You can always help people with individual problems that are critical to their lives. Uh, and that if you spend your time doing that, you will have, you know, you know lived your life well and, um, and made a huge difference in the world. We get so caught up in systems change but often it really is represented by a million little tiny acts of courage and of mattering. And it really does help you keep your character and your sense of self to have those moments. Um, you know, when we work in big law, the ability to carve out time, which is our most precious commodity as lawyers often to do the pro bono work, to do the um, civic engagement, the things that matter so much are also part of keeping your sense of self that are really important. We're at a point where we are graduating out now uh, more than half of our class are women attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, really over the past 40 years, uh, women have entered into the profession in numbers that is now equal to or greater than men. And yet we see few women in positions of leadership, particularly in the, in the private sector at the big firms. Why do you think that is and how do we overcome it? So many complicated and subtle reasons, and thus it's hard to overcome. But I do think, um, you know, we think about all the various kinds of bias that are interwoven into how we're raised and how we think. And one of the oldest and deepest is gender bias. And part of it just becomes the filter through which all of us, men and women, see women of, of whether we perceive their passion as hysteria, whether their ability to keep hold of themselves and keep things deep and um, becomes coldness, that there, there's a stereotype for every which way you go, that there's there's so much that creates a tightrope for women to balance against the filters through which we're perceived. And so a lot of our talent gets wasted. There are also ways, obviously, with work-family conflict that need worked on, but that wouldn't be so severe on women if the society around us encouraged men to do as much of the share of parenting and work in the home as well. So um, it's, it's really tough. And the problem is we know from women's um, educational achievements how much of talent and humanity lies with our half of the human race, and we just shouldn't waste that talent. So the ability for law firms and other legal structures to really make use of their talent, to invest in it, to mentor, to not take it for granted, takes real effort and thought. And it's not simple, 
but um, there's real benefit in doing it. And, and you've broken barriers personally as a female prosecutor, uh, as a president of a university, and as the first uh, female president now of two major universities. Do you think you've faced uh, challenges as a pioneer and as, as really the first woman leader of, of these institutions? I assume so. It's harder for me to know because I'm just me looking out of my own eyes, the, the jarring nature of being the first or, you know, occurs to other people, but how much I perceive it is a little bit of guessing. It does feel really good to shift people's perception of what a university president looks like. It just feels now possible in a way it didn't before. But there are definitely moments when um, whether people really understand who I am or whether they see me through these filters, I'm aware of, I have to grapple with, and and that you walk a finer line of navigating um, people's perceptions of you all the time. And that can be exhausting, but it's also become second nature. Any advice for our women students and women attorneys? You know, I think sometimes with the best intentions, we tell them you can do anything you want. There are no obstacles in your way. Don't worry about it because we don't want to discourage them. I find myself with my 10-year-old daughter not knowing when to tell her these obstacles exist because it feels heartbreaking to mention them. But I don't think it does them any favors. So there's a way that you you can't let it trip you up, the anxiety over bias, the guessing at whether it's there, the projecting it sometimes when it's not there and someone just actually doesn't like you. Um, but awareness of it helps you navigate it and realize that you're not crazy because the worst scenario is when that bias gets implanted in the voice in our head and nobody needs to treat us badly because we treat ourselves badly. We um, got our own confidence. We self-deprecate in a way that makes it hard to be called on by the partner or your boss because you're so doubtful of your own abilities that they they don't know what to make of it, um, that you really have to guard against the internalized bias that causes even more harm. You started your uh, career in legal academia as a clinical professor. How important are are clinics to legal education? Uh, And uh, what were the takeaways for you uh, as a clinical professor? I always thought I might want to teach. And as a practicing lawyer that I I started teaching adjunct on the side, I started writing law review articles on the side, which is not normal. Um, And, uh, but I worried that to be a full-time professor might take me out of the world. And I really wanted to engage with the world of being a lawyer, of teaching students how to practice law. So I loved entering as a faculty member teaching in the clinic and getting that practical experience of teaching students how to actually practice law. And I'll tell you just in the example of civil procedure, I taught that later in the classroom, um, lecturing about civil procedure to first semester students because they need to know the vocabulary quickly is so much more difficult than having a real client who, in our case with the domestic violence clinic, whose life was at stake if you follow the right motion, right? Boy, do you learn a code. Boy, do you learn how to really navigate why process matters of, and, and you remember it for the rest of your life in a way that you might not truly remember Panoya versus Neff. But um, I, I loved that 
chance to teach students the realities of legal practice, to think about ethics with real-life scenarios, to um, think about what it means to do public interest work either on the side as a volunteer or as a full-time job and career and what that means to the course of your life. Uh, it was it was really great. And also to do policy work in the city in which I was practicing because you put your law professor hat on and you get to be this neutral expert who helps uh, elected officials make the right choices. Sometimes uh, I hear the distinction uh, that clinics are about practical skills uh, as opposed to academics. Um, I think that's a false distinction. It's the best way to teach doctrine is by engaging with it, right? We know this with all the neurological, pedagogical research is that that's how you teach best. And so to lock in a point of law by writing a brief about it and arguing to a court or thinking about evidence in the context of really trying a case, that's what clicks in a way. It's it's much harder for us to teach with the Socratic method and have it really stick forever. Um, and the fact that real lawyering doesn't come marked as here's the torts part of your day and here's the <laughs> contracts part of your day, that the intertwining of legal issues is also really powerful in a clinic. I have to say, when I think about the you know potential to provide experiences for, for students that change their lives and their outlooks, yeah. it's hard to see an experience you know that has a more of an impact than, than clinical education. Yeah, these are the stories that our alumni come back and tell us is when they really made the appellate argument or they figured out how to save a client's life. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. You speak a lot about mentorship and the important role that mentors have played in your life, in your career. Do you have advice for students on how to get mentorship in a complicated world where so much of work is remote or hybrid these days? I do think that getting real mentorship requires being physically present because so much of it happens in the hallway and outside of um, the billable hours. And so that ability to be present, to get words of wisdom after the deposition, all of that really matters. Um, And the other thing I tell students is that what I've learned as I get older and get asked to be a mentor is how flattering it is for us um, and how much we really learn what we've figured out in our wisdom in life when we lock it in, when we teach it and get the chance to process it with young people. That's just a delight. So that they should be brave about asking us because really they're doing us a favor. And what do you think about the concept of reverse mentoring? I love it. I think there's a way that it asks of people who are more senior to be humble about the fact that there's still more that they can learn. And it reminds younger people that they have something to bring to the table. You know, often it's on obvious subjects like technological fluency (laughs) that we weren't raised with in quite the same way. Um, But there's so much more to it than that. I also like the idea of when you bring in new employees, having a period, maybe a month in, where you ask them what they have to teach us from their fresh eyes and fresh perspective. I have to say, I learn a lot from my uh, uh, two 20-something-year-old sons. And so uh, I feel they they reverse mentor uh, me in important ways. And they challenge us 
I mean, as they should, and hopefully politely and with respect, but nevertheless. Right. Any advice for law students today? Um, I hope that they can really think about the arc of their career, um, to not get stuck on any one track, to know that life is long and they will do many, many things as you and I have both done in our legal careers, right? So many different ways we've been able to use it. In the short term, tell them to breathe. (laughs) Um, This is an anxiety-fueled culture that we are in, both in who wants to be a lawyer and then the ways that we give exams and so much about it is very high pressure, but that they should find what they love about the law to really, um, you know, embrace the subjects that they care about, not just what they think they should take in law school, and that's what will fuel them. So Matthew, what do you think lawyering does for leadership? What have you experienced being a dean? You know, my take comes out of being a dean, but before that being uh, a faculty member, a professor, and before that being a, a practicing lawyer. So I've, I've had a journey through these issues, and I feel I've had an opportunity uh, to learn from some of the greats. Uh, and we at Fordham have been fortunate to have incredible deans, uh, each of whom left a deep stamp on the school, on our students, on our alumni, and have created and built a culture uh, that I really value and treasure. And so some of the things that really have stood out for me, first of all, is the importance of service. Uh, and by that, I mean not simply, although I certainly mean um, using one's legal skills in order to help others, uh, men and women for others, uh, but also a perspective on one's place and role in the world, um, that uh, the world and everything doesn't revolve around uh, you as an individual, um, uh, but rather we each are, uh, are situated in a larger context and that we can help shape and impact that context. Uh, we can have we have impacts on the people around us, on other people's lives, on institutions, uh, and to think about um, the impact that we have on others and on the institutions that we enter. I think that's some of the things that people really value about Fordham lawyers. Uh, yes, they're super smart. Uh, yes, they know contracts and torts. Uh, yes, they have really strong legal skills. But beyond that, they have an outlook on the world, on the organizations that they join, uh, which is one of service, which is one of contributing. Uh, I've had uh, lawyers say to me um, that the way they think about it is when you have a crisis, when you're there in the office at two in the morning, you know, who can you trust? Who do you want alongside you? Uh, And the answer is uh, they want a Fordham lawyer. And when I think about that, I think, why is that? You know, what is it about this school uh, and our philosophy and approach uh, that inculcates this? And I think it runs very deep. I think it runs back to the Jesuit mission and values of the school. And I don't take it for granted. I love that. I just finished reading John Furick's memoir. And that um, idea of lawyers, Atticus Finch, of someone of unquestioned integrity who realizes their power in the world and uses it carefully, who understands their responsibility to do more and to do better um, really matters. And um, that's exactly right. There are lawyers who will do your bidding, and then there are lawyers who will help you um, really solve problems 
in all of their complexity, including the moral dimension, who will help you play the long game in life and in business, who will help you um, find the true north. And those are worth their weight in gold. And when I think about it, I think that's why so many of our graduates end up in leadership positions. It's not that we uh, uh, we consciously set out to say, we're going to teach you how to lead others. Right. We're going to teach you how to run things. Rather, we uh, impart and we emphasize a certain view of the world and one's role in it that, uh, that make people look to our graduates naturally as leaders, uh, that, that people can have an impact regardless of where they are on the org chart. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you think about, about it that way, then uh, you become desirable and uh, and people can understand what you can contribute to an organization. And so I think that's why so many of our graduates end up in leadership positions. It's not necessarily because they start out with that ambition, but rather people look to them. Uh, and I, I treasure that about our school. And as I say, it's a long tradition. Um, uh, of course, John Furick is the embodiment of that uh, tradition. And we're so fortunate to have uh, someone with us who so thoroughly embodies the values of our school. I've learned a tremendous amount uh, from John uh, and from the other deans at Fordham, from Bill Trainer and Mike Martin, um, from all the deans that I've worked with. Well, and you embody that too. I keep it in mind. I don't think I embody it. Uh, I work towards it. Um, but uh but I do keep their, um, you know, their role models in mind with me uh, all the time. And uh, and one of the things I think I've learned over time is that uh, what's really important to people is not necessarily the you know rational arguments or the issue that is presented, but rather we all want to feel valued. We all want to feel part of something uh, important and to understand that whatever the superficial conversation is, that underneath it, there's this subtext that's always emotional. Um, and so I always try and keep that in mind. I don't always uh, succeed. Uh, and then I think the extra piece that I always need to keep in mind is that I'm not above this. I'm part of it. And so I have my own emotions uh, to deal with and my own uh, outlook, which don't necessarily always lead me um, in the direction of the right answer. Uh, But I think the key is then to just be aware of them. And so much of what we teach students is not what we lecture to them. It's what we model for them. And that mix of seeking purpose in our own lives, of being drawn to that in our profession, not by status, and of um, being humble and kind in and out of the classroom really matters. I completely agree. And I also think it's important to love what you do and to convey that and to communicate it. And when when I teach a civil procedure class, which I haven't done in a while, um, I always kept in my mind, if I don't show that I love this, then why would anyone else care about it? Why would they love it? Especially civil procedure. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So so I've taught civil procedure and administrative law, another class that fits that description um, of uh, uh, it can appear dry as dust on the surface, um, but underneath, uh, you know, it raises big, fundamental, profound issues, not only philosophically, but practically as well. And I think, too, as we ask them to think about their career over a long arc, to realize 
that that finding what you love is so important. And for some of them, that will be uh, an incredible law firm. And it, for some of them, it will be jumping into business, being an entrepreneur and building something from scratch or um, doing the public interest work that's so critical because our legal system really doesn't work unless there are brilliant lawyers in the trenches doing the parts of law that fall apart if we don't have equal representation. So I love that you send Fordham Law alums to do all of the above. Yes, we need great lawyers in the whole range of roles, uh, everything from corporate boardrooms uh, to public defender's offices. So, Tanya, not only are you new to Fordham this fall, you're also uh, new to New York City. And, uh, and first of all, what's your thinking of the connection between Fordham and New York City? Uh, and as you come, come here, um, you know, how does the city strike you? Where are we now as we emerge from the pandemic? Well, obviously, New York is everything to Fordham. But I like to think Fordham's also been a big part of New York. I mean, we are one of the anchor institutions that's almost 200 years old and helping make the city what it is as well. But no, I, I absolutely love it here. The scale of the place, the incredible um, business and economic and cultural offerings. It just sort of blows your mind and hard to know what to do at night or maybe stay home and watch TV sometimes. But um, I actually have a little bit of experience of New York because my parents met at Fordham as graduate students. So I spent the first two and a half years of my life um, at 112th and Broadway. So I learned how to walk and talk here and navigate a playground. I like to think it's a little bit of my swagger and impatience might come from this formative few years here. But I have loved it. Um, My 10-year-old daughter is prancing around Manhattan, just taking it all in. And we've had a ball. That's fantastic to hear. I have to say one of the things that I love about New York and think makes it a unique place to study is it is both local and global at the same time. Yes. There's incredibly rich local communities um, that are uh, that have depth to them and traditions uh, and yet are constantly evolving. And at the same time, we're this a global center of business, commerce, the arts, culture, media. Uh, and so you can really run the gamut here and see the connections between uh, you know, the local and the global all here in our own city. Such an incredible microcosm of the globe. And the reality is, you know, this this experiment in global history of having some of the most impoverished but determined people from every country in the world come together in one city and live in very close proximity and speak just a babble of different languages should have failed. But instead, it created the epicenter of so much of the world. It's amazing. It is amazing. Thank you for spending this time with me, and thank you for your leadership of our great university. Thank you, Matthew. I'm so glad to work with you and so proud to be a member of the law school faculty. 